What a wonderful morning together around God's Word together. I wonder if you could turn with me to Luke chapter 1, if you have your Bible. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. Well, the moment was to be my big debut. I was chosen for a prestigious solo right in the middle of a musical masterpiece. Okay, well, a masterpiece may be overstating the summer children's musical. It wasn't a Christmas musical. It was one of those camps where you work all week with a group of children and then present it at the end of the week to all the parents who come and watch. The moment had been building all week long. My solo came in two parts. As best I can remember, it was a song about Abraham and Lot. I couldn't have been a day older than nine. The verse one was at the beginning. The, the rest of the choir would join in for a little while. And then halfway through the song, I would step back up and sing verse two, my solo moment. The first I'd ever had. We worked on it all week. The camp came to a close. The song started to play. It was my song. One ended. I, I took center stage, front and center, took the mic off the stand. I even checked it to make sure it was on because I was a smart nine-year-old. Never touched the buttons on the microphone. The music prelude starts. It builds up. There's that... Pause in the music, the moment when the singer is supposed to, you know, jump in. And I was blank. Not a word in my brain. Couldn't think of one single lyric to that whole song. I couldn't have sang the choir part or any of it. I had nothing to offer. It gave a whole new meaning to the term showstopper. So... <laughs> Let the nine-year-old forget the lyrics to the solo and the show's going to stop all right. It wasn't supposed to be like that. It was supposed to be a real show-stopping moment. You know, the kind, in a, like you see in a Broadway musical. That number in the midst of a song that draws the audience in. You know, this word showstopper gets thrown around a little bit loosely. But some talk about it as if it's a, a, a song where the, the round of applause starts afterwards, whether the cast likes it or not. But sometimes a song reaches such heights in the midst of a musical that people can't help but, but make the show halt for a moment while they clap in affirmation or they, they pause and, and want to affirm that the tragedy that's just happened. That it's almost involuntary for a crowd when the show-stopping song happens in the middle of a good musical. All of your cares of the outside world are suspended. You're, you're drawn into the action. Your complete attention is commanded by the performance on the stage. And sometimes in these moments, the crowd wants to linger a little bit longer and listen a little bit closer. The song might even be sung by them as they go on their way that evening. It's the one that every cast member really wants to sing. They try out for that part, that show-stopping tune right in the middle of the musical. The kind of song that the audience carries with them when they go. And the actors clamor to sing on their own. You know, scholars compare the way that Luke uses songs in his gospel to a, a Broadway-style musical theater. In fact, Luke's birth narrative almost reads like a musical on its own. 
It seems that around every corner, somebody else is bursting into song. Today we have the song of Mary. Soon we'll have the song of Zechariah and Simeon. The angels will sing their own song. And sadly, sometimes we skip past them because, well, we're people who just want a good plot development. We want to get on to the details and see what's, what's happening here. But the songs of Luke and his gospel pull us in like show-stopping moments to be drawn into what's happening, but more importantly, to understand why. Robert Tannehill, biblical scholar, compares them to an operatic aria. These are moments when the composer stops the action so that a, a single poem or musical development can transcend what's taking place and, and bring us all to a deeper awareness of what's happening. That's how Luke uses these Hebrew hymns in the middle of his gospel. Mary's song that we find in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. The angel Gabriel has already visited Mary. Greatly troubled by that visit, she wonders deeply, what is behind all of this? When she learns that she will give birth to a son, she rightfully wonders, how can this, how can this be? This makes no sense. She's the age of betrothal, maybe 14, 15, 16 years old. She's never been more than a day's journey from home. And an angel shows up to let her know she will bear a child. Not just a child, a son. It's an ancient gender reveal. Something none of her friends would have gotten. We have manger sets sitting around our house at different places. One on the coffee table that's actually made out of toy pieces, one the kids can play with. Earlier this week, early in the morning, our three-year-old daughter was across the house and we overheard her playing with, with Mary and the angel. And in her recounting of the events as only children can do, the angel swooped in and said, I'm Gabriel, you're gonna have a baby. Now I'm flying away. I think the jetpacks are in John's version. <laughs> but it can feel like that, can't it? That this angel pops into the story, drops this news on Mary, and then it's gone to leave her to deal with it. I wonder if it ever feels like that in your life, that God shows up and drops these demands on you for the Christian life and then expects you to muddle through on your own. Sometimes it can feel like what we're up against, the task in front of us or the hardship we're facing is more than we can handle and we don't have enough to sustain us. Where is God in those moments? But God didn't leave because God never leaves. See, God was gonna be more present with Mary than he had been with anyone in all of history and he's no less present with you. The angel comes to her and says, the Holy Spirit will come on you in the next verse. You won't be left to your own. The power of the Most High, Gabriel says, will overshadow you. And he overshadows you also in every moment that you face. And that's when Mary starts on the move. The journey to Judea would have been plenty of time for her to mull these thoughts over, to relive again and again the announcement she just received from the angel Gabriel. It was enough time for her to start humming a song as she traveled, maybe even making up the lyrics as she went down the road. Maybe these were the moments where in the quiet and stillness of traveling from 
her town to Judea, she's pinning the songs, pinning the phrases that she would sing to Elizabeth only moments later. She hears Gabriel's words echo in her mind, he will be great, he will be called son of the most high, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Who knows? Maybe all that commotion when they showed up at Elizabeth and Zechariah's house was enough to inspire Mary to come up with these words on the spot. That would be fine too. Hardly the most miraculous thing that's happening in this whole number. But the whole story comes to a grinding halt when she arrives at Zechariah and Elizabeth's house. Each of the songs in Luke are worth hearing, but this one, this is the showstopper. That's why for centuries, people have sung the song again and again and prayed it over and over again. Luke presents her song in the narrative as a, as a total pause. The accounting of events are set aside and their meaning is placed front and center to make sure that we understand the significance both of what's happening to her and what's happening for everyone. Other characters slowly fade to the dark corners of the stage. The, the lights come centered on Mary, the spotlight on her. She steps up to the microphone and makes sure that it's on. And she begins to sing her song. My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his servant. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. The first thing we notice about Mary's song is that Mary sings like she knows who God is. Mary sings like she knows who God is. The Magnificat, it's called. That's the first word of this song in Latin. That's where it gets its popular name. It just simply means, I magnify in my soul the Lord. As one translation says, tell out the greatness of God. Eugene Peterson paraphrases those first verses of her song, I'm bursting with God news. I'm dancing the song of my Savior God. You see, she begins by rejoicing in God because she knows who he is. And she's overwhelmed and taken back by the reality that favor and blessing has shown up in her, a lowly servant. You see, she sits at the bottom of the totem pole in Israel She's encountered the author of the great reversal, the Lord of the upside down kingdom. And though she is of the lowest stature, she'll now become the most blessed among all women in the world. You see, in her grand declaration of this mighty God, she echoes familiar songs that we know. She sings songs like Moses and Miriam in the Old Testament, like Deborah. And most of all, she echoes the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2 as she celebrates the birth of her son Samuel and all that God will do through him. The song is like a collage of Hebrew scripture. Nearly every line echoes a phrase that fills the pages of the Old Testament. You see, Mary may be lowly and, and of humble origin, but she speaks the language of God's word. You see, over and over again, God chooses the most unlikely of people in scriptures to do the greatest things. But I don't think it's any coincidence that God chooses a lowly servant who happens to be steeped in his word, filled 
with his scriptures. You know, beyond Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, scholars count as many as 12 different Old Testament passages reflected in Mary's song. She knows the law, the prophets, and the writings. She's got all of them down. She so fervently memorized the words of Scripture that when Elizabeth comes and greets her, they leap out of her mouth in song. The words of Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy, 1 and 2 Samuel, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Micah, and Zephaniah. This might be a New Testament hymn, but she sings it with an Old Testament melody because she sings like she knows who God is. And she also sings like she knows what he will do. She sings like she knows what he will do. Verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. You see, Mary began her song singing about the great things that God had done for her. But in the second half of the song, in verse 50, it shifts. She knows what God has done for her. She can do for all her people. The blessing and mercy of God that has been poured out on her will also extend to all generations. Her language shifts from the personal to the corporate, from the individual to the historic. It's not just her life she sings about, but all of history hinges on this moment. God's great mercy, his great I love you of the Advent season extends beyond Mary into every generation to come. He has done Mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. You see, she sings about God's mighty acts and how God has promised to overcome the evil of this world. She holds together this image of a a merciful God who is faithful to his covenant, the promises he began with Abraham, and the divine warrior who's going to lift up his mighty arm and strike down his enemies. Only he'll do that through a baby born in Bethlehem by giving favor to the weak, preference to the poor, love to the lowly, death on a cross. You see, the proud are too busy looking down on others to look up to God. The proud have no need for the divine as they work to make glory for themselves. The ones obsessed with lifting themselves up are the very ones she says will be humbled. In pursuit of being self-sufficient, they have no need of salvation. And it's those who are aware of their true lowliness who will be lifted up by this Savior. And she's the first, by the way, to call him that. My Savior. You start reading Mary's song and you realize this is no quaint Christmas carol. It's not the stuff of of Bing Crosby and they're not going to put it on a Hallmark card anytime soon. They won't be making a Lifetime movie themed after this song. This is why centuries of readers have heard the song of Mary and found it to be utterly revolutionary. It turns worlds upside down. In the past century, there have been no less than three separate instances where governments have banned the public reading of Mary's Magnificat. 
In British rule in India, the Magnificat was prohibited from being sung in churches. William Temple, Archbishop of Canterbury, instructed his missionaries in India to never read Mary's song in public when unbelievers were present. They might get the wrong idea. In the 1980s, the government of Guatemala banned this song. It was too subversive, too politically dangerous. The authorities were worried that it might incite a riot. It might inspire the oppressed and poor to to rise up and revolt, to believe that change was indeed possible. In the 70s, in the midst of what was called the Dirty War in Argentina, when hundreds of children disappeared, an, an activist group began placing the text of Mary's song on posters all throughout the Capitol Plaza. And so the military committee of Argentina outlawed any public display of Mary's song. These are revolutionary words. In 1933, at More than a decade before his death and martyrdom under the Nazi regime, Dietrich Bonhoeffer preached his own Advent sermon, saying the song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, surrendered, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out. The song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about collapsing thrones and humbled lords of this world, about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. Famous Methodist missionary E. Stanley Jones said the same, calling it the most revolutionary document in the history of the world. Now, Mary may not intend to incite political revolt. Maybe at times she would. She's certainly not interested in having the weak simply rise up and replace the high, only to rule in the same way with the same dilemmas as before. No, she has a bigger movement in mind. That God, not man, is the subject of every action in this text, every verb. And she's proclaiming a revolution in the truest sense of the word, a a turning in one direction all the way to the other. God's great reversal. What was once all important is no longer important. What we once regarded as blessed will be brought down. Those who know the depths of need and despair will be lifted up. Those who grasp for power will be cast down. The humble will be raised. The hungry will receive everything they've been denied. And those who have done the denying, those who have withheld, will be withheld from. You see, in Mary's breathtaking, show-stopping song, we find out that the world has pretty much gotten things exactly wrong. She sings these powerful words because she sees that the whole story of Israel was waiting for this, that she carries in her the clue to the entire puzzle. In her womb is the key to the entire mystery of the Old Testament, the hopes and fears of all the years are met here in him, the Son of God, 
who she now carries into Elizabeth's home. See, this is not about a revolution of a particular time and place, but a revolution for all of history. God's revealing of himself in flesh will unveil who he is and tell us the truth about who we are. We're finding out the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. All in Mary's song. All in this Son of God who comes at Christmas. You know, my solo in the children's musical, I did come through, by the way. I didn't go completely blank. I mean, it was uncomfortable. It may have been a couple measures late. The music may have had to repeat back to when I should have jumped in. But finally it hit me. Words came flooding back and I began to sing that solo only to realize halfway through the solo that I was singing the second verse. And all I can think about the whole time I'm singing the second verse to open the song about Abraham's life is what am I going to sing when verse 2 comes around? Do you just sing the same thing again? Puzzled look and all of the other children, they don't know which chorus they're supposed to sing. The moment came and I was singing it all out of order. The third thing we notice about Mary's song is that not only does she know who God is, Not only does she sing like she knows what he will do, but she sings as if it has already happened. Have you noticed what a strange thing Mary does here? She sings about the future as if it's the past. Six times in this song, she uses past tense verbs to describe future events. She's singing it all out of order. He has done. He has scattered. He has brought down. He has lifted up. He has filled. He has sent away. Barbara Brown Taylor calls this singing ahead of time. It was all happening inside of Mary and she was so sure of it that she was singing about it ahead of time. Not in the future tense, but in the past, as if the promise had already come true. And the only thing Mary is absolutely sure about in this whole scenario is that she has a God who is with her and for her and who wants to bring us all life. And Mary's trust in that fact leads her to sing about God's promised future as if it has been brought about by the son that is waiting in her womb. She doesn't wait to see how things will turn out first. She sings ahead of time and all of the angels with her if there are any big changes going on in you right now, if something is underway that you can't predict the end of, if you've got your own morning sickness, you might try and follow Mary's lead here. It'd certainly be nice to have some of the details about how things will turn out, but that's not really necessary, is it? Because in the midst of whatever it is that you are facing, you know who God is. You know what he will do. And because he is with you, you can sing as if it's already happened. 30 weeks before the manger, 30 years before the cross, Mary takes center stage and offers this show-stopping Advent hymn. It draws us in to hear her story 
to discover that her story is my story. It's Israel's story. It's the whole world's story that the mighty God has done great things for us. And holy is his name. You see, these revolutionary words come to remind us the same God who rescued Israel from captivity out of Egypt has come to set us free. He roots out injustice in every form and transforms people into those who are fit for his kingdom. Mary announces that the God we know in history, the God we can know through his word, is acting now on our behalf and no power can stand in his way. And she was right. And we better listen because God did and is doing exactly what she said. Think about the powers who ruled over Jesus' life. Caesar Augustus reigned over Rome at the time when Jesus came. In fact, at his death, the crowd shouted, We have no king but Caesar. In AD 14, Caesar Augustus died. He's rumored to have been poisoned by his own wife. Herod the Great, that awful despot who knew Mary's words were true, which is why he sent armies out to kill baby boys, died an awful death of his own with rotting flesh, screaming in pain. Pontius Pilate, the one who washed his hands of this whole matter, was deposed and sent away, kicked out, sent to Europe from the Roman Empire. You can go today to Switzerland, to Mount Pilatus, where his existence was so miserable that he took his own life by jumping into Lake Lucerne. They're all gone. And the same can be said for every would-be king and so-called ruler who ever came after them. They're all gone. But Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is still here. Every power that ever lived has passed away, but not Mary's baby. He's still here, and he has done everything that she said. And because he is here, you can know him too. You can know who he is. You can know what he will do. And you can sing, and you can live as if it's already happened. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come today praying that our souls would magnify the Lord, that our spirits would rejoice in God, our Savior, for he has looked with favor on us. And all generations have surely been blessed by him, for the mighty one has done great things for us. And so, God, we profess and proclaim holy is your name. And may it be done to us according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.